Fegel, you can uh, yeah. start just telling a bit, little bit more about yourself and, and then you can introduce Pete. Yep. So, uh, my name is uh, Fegel. Uh, I grew up in a, a non-Christian home uh, or even non-religious home. Okay, just start a little bit more because when you record it, it's better. Yeah. Yep. I go again. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> so, uh, uh, my name is Leif Egil. I grew up in a, a non-religious home. And um, uh, I, be I started believing in some sort of God at uh, 18 uh, when I encountered uh, the, an argument from the beginning of uh, the universe. Uh, claiming that the universe, if it has a beginning, that actually points to some explanation for the beginning. That explanation is God. Uh, but uh, when I accepted this um, argument, that di did not lead me to Christianity, because uh, the, uh, the argument was simply for a God, not the Christian God. So for me it took like seven years uh, before I uh, entertained the uh, Christian uh, worldview as a serious um, contender. Hello. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, um, <coughs> at 25 I started um, searching for uh, the historical Jesus and uh, through my research on uh, historical Jesus I became a Christian uh, going from the position that I don't think Jesus even existed to the position that I even think he rose from the dead um, after that I've done a bachelor's degree in communication and worldview uh, and a master's degree in philosophy uh, and I currently teach at uh, Communication Worldview and I'm, I'm a, a youth worker in uh, Tove Yeah. Very good. Then we have Pete. <laughs> Tell about himself. Well, uh, unlike uh, Leif, I grew up in a Christian religious family both my parents were teachers. They met at Teacher Training College in Portsmouth in England, stayed there. Uh, and so uh, it was a household where matters of Christian faith and of science were both valued. The kind of home that had a bookshelf with, with books uh, on matters like the relationship between science and religion, or some of the uh, apologetic works of C.S. Lewis, uh, for example. Um, and parents who gave me a lot of freedom to kind of ask questions and to explore, uh, and you know, told me that you know, I didn't have to believe what they did just because they did, and, and that this was something I needed to kind of, as I matured and gradually understood more about what was being said to think about it for myself and make my own choices uh, about religious matters. 
Um, so I did do that. Uh, I, you know, thought about it. I questioned it. Uh, it's just that the conclusions that I kept coming to were that yes, I I actually did kind of believe this Christian story uh, for myself, uh, and that continued to be uh, the case uh, to the, today. Um, I'm open to being persuaded otherwise, but I haven't yet seen sufficient reason to change my mind. Um, I went off to uh, university, uh, first off at Cardiff in Wales, um, to study what I thought was going to be a joint degree in English literature and music. Uh, those were my kind of passions uh, at the time. Um, but I had studied um, classical civilization in my, in my A-levels, my just pre-university studies, and we'd done a little bit of uh, philosophy of Plato and so on in that course. And so when the university said, you've got to do three courses, three different humanities courses in your first year, I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll do philosophy as my extra course. That'll, that'll be interesting. Well, um, I'd come a bit late to music in life. What I really wanted to do was composing. And I, I am an amateur composer now. If you go to my website, uh, you can find a page there of uh, some amateur composing. Um, but I'd come late to music, and although I'd got my like grade seven exam on the flute and so on, to carry on past the first year doing composition, it turned out, and I didn't know this when I signed on, <laughs> I don't know why, but it turned out that you had to be like, uh, you had to have grading exams on at least two different instruments, and I just didn't qualify. So I, I couldn't do composing, and I, I wasn't interested in studying like music history or other areas of that. And the English department, and this was in the early 1990s, the English department was dominated by a very postmodern approach to literature, the kind of approach that says, hiya, evening, texts, uh, uh, texts that authors write don't mean anything in themselves. You can't misinterpret a text because texts mean whatever they mean to you. It's all about what do you get out of the text, not questions about well, what is actually in the text. So actually my English literature essays were turning into critiques of postmodern literary theory and the thinking of French postmodernists like uh, Roland Barthes. Uh, the, the author is dead, Roland Barthes. Uh, and I was really enjoying the philosophy and actually turned out to be okay at doing it, shall we say. And my tutors kind of encouraged me to sign on to come and do philosophy and abandon uh, the, uh, the English literature people and I couldn't do the music. And so that's what I ended up doing. And I thought, right, okay, I'm going to approach philosophy. I am going to approach it as a Christian. Um, so my kind of attitude is going to be when I come across an argument against some element of what I believe, I'm going to take the argument seriously. You know, how you kind of analyse arguments, philosophers love all this kind of premise one, premise two, therefore, pre con you know, conclusion and stuff. Well, you, you learn those tools of the trade and you analyse the argument and you think, does this convince me? Does this conclusion follow from those premises? Is there a mistake somewhere in this argument? 
And it always seemed to me that uh, the arguments against had mistakes in them, uh, uh, or at the very least were not uh, strong enough to counter the weight of the arguments for. Um, because when you're asking, you know, what kind of worldview do I believe, it's a, it's a comparative matter. Um, don't go looking for the perfect worldview because they're constructs made up by people. <laughs> We're not perfect. Uh, but you can go looking for what seems to be overall the best worldview, the one that makes the most sense of what everything else you think you know, right? And it's always seemed to me that that is the, the, the Christian story of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, so I ended up going on to uh, do an MA at Sheffield, four talk courses and a dissertation on the cosmological argument. Different form, though. Uh, and then I went on and did a two-year research and MPhil degree at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Um, and I was uh, kind of aiming to do a PhD. But again, the system they had there was you sign on for this two-year thing, and then during those two years, they make a decision about whether you just kind of add on another year to extend your course and turn it into a PhD thesis. And I, I went there saying, I want to do this interdisciplinary study, this bringing different areas of philosophy together. And I want to think about um, objective ideas of truth, goodness, and beauty, and how they, those values relate to each other. And then I want to apply that to thinking about the character, the nature of God. Very famously, Anselm, back in the medieval period, had uh, said, let's, you know, let's think of God as the, the greatest conceivable being. And I wanted to think about God as the greatest, uh, the most beautiful being that you could think of, basically. And they said, yeah, fine. And then my tutor, who was an atheist, uh, left to go and have a sabbatical teaching in America, and I got passed off to another tutor uh, who was a Quaker, but was a Wittgensteinian philosopher rather than an analytic philosopher. I don't need to go into the details of that other than to say that meant he wasn't particularly sympathetic to what I was doing. In a way that, strangely, my atheist professor kind of had been. And between kind of being passed from one to another, I think I kind of fell through the cracks somehow. And in my second year, they, they suddenly told me, oh, your thesis is too, too interdisciplinary to be a PhD. We'd love you to come and do a PhD with us after you finished your MPhil. So basically they were saying to me, all you need to do is find another three years of money <laughs> to pay us the fees to sign on and do this PhD after you've done your MPhil. Well, at that stage, that was not economically viable uh, for me. So I, I took my, my MPhil, I did my viva, uh, my oral defense of my thesis, and that turned into a bit of an argument between my two supervisors, <laughs> with my atheist supervisor standing up for the legitimacy philosophically of my project against my other supervisor's criticisms, which was fascinating. Uh, and actually, to tell you this story, he, he, uh, my atheist supervisor later phoned me up to give me the news about how had I done. And you know, you can, you can, you can pass 
you can pass subject to making a minor variation, minor adjustment, or you can be kind of asked to do lots of rewriting, or you can fail, right? And he said, you've passed subject to a minor alteration. What this means technically is you need to make the alteration, reprint your thesis, rebind your thesis, and resubmit your thesis. But I have here a pot of uh, whiteout, of, of uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, if you're willing, on your behalf, I'm very happy to white out the offending footnote. So I said, uh, yes, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> the minor alteration was to delete one footnote in thesis. And since my thought was, well, all that means is I will not make a claim about something that I do believe. I won't actually have to s say something I don't believe, right? All I'm doing is failing to say something that I didn't even think was important enough to put in the main text. <laughs> He just objected, and I, I, I kind of felt there was interesting things happening behind the scenes there. Um, but at that stage, you know, I, I'd run out of money to, to pursue academia, and I, want, I needed to, to get a job. And I actually ended up getting a job working for a church in another city in England called Leicester uh, as, a, as a student worker, as a kind of youth worker with students at university. They've got two universities in Leicester. Uh, I went there for two years and ended up doing three years of kind of youth work, um, running um, Bible study groups with students and doing evangelism to students and so on. Uh, and then I moved down to where I live now, Southampton, to work with a Christian educational charity. Uh, they were looking for someone to help them with their schools work that they were developing, where under in state schools in the UK, whatever the students have you know, chosen to study as subjects, there's a certain amount of things that they have to study under kind of citizenship, kind of um, ethics, understanding the, the society you're living in, um, philosophy and ethics and religion and so on. And this charity provided a package where schools could buy in a presenter to do a, a conference for a morning with their you know, 116-year-old students in a hall uh, for three hours or whatever and to get them thinking about philosophy and ethics and the big questions in life and so on and I would often like come into a school and teach them here's how logic works now you're all going to get into different groups and work up a presentation depending on what you think about the existence of God so atheists I want you to come up with the best argument you can come up with against the existence of God and agnostics you've got to argue for that position and, and so on and so on and then at the end, you know, I'll mark your presentations and give a box of chocolates to the group who makes the best argument. That won't necessarily be the group that I agree with. It'll be the group that makes the best argument. Um, and that meant that students of all different positions on that question had to actually start thinking in terms of how do I articulate in proper argumentative kind of philosophical form what I think about this and actually for a lot of students that meant that they discovered there's a big difference between kind of having an opinion about something and actually being able to give an argument for it and that includes the Christian students right I was keen that they learn <laughs> this lesson 
but that actually here is a Christian teaching them how to articulate and defend and analyse arguments and to think about the big questions and that you can think rationally and reasonably about the big questions and disagree in an agreeable way with each other because you've got this kind of common toolkit, this common set of rules which gives you some sort of united ground on which to meet and help each other think about the big issues. You're not in a position where I've got my opinion, you've got yours, we disagree, I shout at you, you shout at me. If I've got a bigger advertising budget than you do, I can influence more people. Mm-hmm. Of course, a lot of that goes on in our society, but I want, I'm keen that the, the church particularly be in a position of teaching people how to think and giving people opportunities like this, like the Veritas conference and, and as we do in the university and so on, to think about the big questions. And that actually, you know, even in universities, there's a lot in the UK, I don't know what the situation is here in other universities so much, but in the UK, uh, the kind of position is even at universities that are kind of owned by Christian establishments, we don't mention God within the curriculum. Uh, that's kind of, that's your private stuff. Uh, We don't think about God when we're doing history or sociology or science or we might mention him in the theology faculty maybe, you know, or the philosophy course, of course. But other than that, um, we, we, we all get along by not talking about the things we differ on. And I think a much better model of what's what's called an open public square is to all get along by talking and arguing with each other about the things we don't agree on <laughs> and, and, and to include that discussion within the curriculum and within venues, within the, the public square um, and th- that's a much better way of, of actually getting along and handling our differences than, than the kind of secularising way of pushing those differences into the private sphere and out of the public square. Um, so that was something I was keen to do. And it was through the folks at this charity, it was called Demaris UK, uh, and a conference, uh, the, the uh, European Leadership Forum conference that's about the church training leaders in ex-Iron Curtain countries uh, in all sorts of fields, that we met folks from Anala University. Uh, well, Gimla Collin, which then became later on part of that university. It was still a uh, solo institution at that stage and they were interested in setting up Damaris Norga if you've heard of that and if you haven't you now have and go and find their website and their podcast and, and so on uh, damaris.no uh, and so I met folks uh, from from Christian Sound from Gimla Collin through the charity I was working for and then they were saying things like oh we bring a study stu- study tour of students over to the UK once a year. Would you like to come and do some teaching on that study tour? Yeah, that would be wonderful. I was like, oh, well, maybe you could, you know, you could fly out to, to Norway and, and do some stuff with our students there. Oh, I'd love to. Maybe you could come on staff part-time, you know, a 20% position for doing these things. Oh, that, that's lovely. And then when coronavirus hit, and, you know, universities and all sorts of institutions were grappling with how do we carry on under coronavirus lockdown and so on, and universities were suddenly 
it pushed to increase that push to online learning. There'd been a kind of trend to doing online courses, but boy, did that accelerate <laughs> under coronavirus. They said, uh, let's double your time. Let's make you a 40% person with us and say half of your time is doing research and publication, papers and books and so on. Half of your time is teaching, but including writing English language course modules for delivery online. And I've written a course for NLR on um, the relationship between science and theology, uh, a one module course on that. And this term we launched a two module course on uh, thinking about Christian apologetics uh, in a kind of holistic way, going back to that stuff I did at university <coughs> on truth and goodness and beauty. Uh, and I, I, I've written some stuff on thinking about how we do, um, you know, communicating the gospel persuasively apologetics in the church uh, and saying it's about help trying to help people to become persuaded that their becoming a disciple of Jesus would be something that is reasonable and good and beautiful as a way of life to adopt um, because as much as ideas are involved in in this sphere in in any what I call any way of life or spirituality people are trying to combine what's in their heads with what's in their hearts in a way that leads them to behave in, consistently with that in the world. Uh, and there's all sorts of different ways people try and do that. There are, of course, some overlaps, of course. There are, there are differences. Um, and Christianity is a, is a way of combining your head and your heart and your hands or your, you can say your, your assumptions, your attitudes, your actions, there's all sorts of uh, alliterative ways of putting it, um, that is Jesus-centred. That is, relations, forgiven relationship with God through Jesus as the organising principle of your, of your life, of your spirituality. Uh, and so I've written a course that tries to emphasise kind of not, not just arguing, but also taking seriously issues about goodness and issues about beauty and aesthetics and how art kind of communicates the Christian worldview, just in the way that any art or movie or song, or whatever, communicates the spirituality of the artist, right? So you can help people to, you know, think, you know, would be following Jesus be a beautiful thing? Oh, I can see people can make beautiful art that communicates to me what it would be like to live a, a Christian life. Uh, I can kind of get some, se some sense and some judgment upon that from the outside by engaging with this artistic expression of it. Um, and so I think that can be a, a useful part of Christian communication that particularly the kind of Protestant church after the Reformation in the West has kind of dropped the ball on. Uh, we know very hot on the truth of the gospel and uh, of uh, moral values because of the whole sin thing being quite important in Christianity, right? But beauty has kind of, oh, that's not as important. And actually, I want to say, no, that those are all engaged together with each other um, and all reflect the nature of God, of course, ultimately. So that's a kind of potted history of where I've come from and how I've got here today, paying particular attention to the kind of philosophical themes that really excite me and get me going. Uh, and why I'm, I'm here and know these folks uh, and so on. And um, I'm sure we're both happy to, uh, 
to take your questions uh, of whatever sort, uh, whether to do with what I've said or some other topic that's on your mind, even if I haven't mentioned it, don't be shy. Och så är er det självklart inte något problem att tala på norsk så ska jag eventuellt översätta det är er inte något problem i det hela tatt. Nu har det möjlighet. Jag har inte tid. Tack. Det är som är vilka frågor har du? And you can ask in Norwegian as well, if that's an issue. And Leif will just translate. You said that. Yeah, that's what you said. Ah, you see. That's because I don't know Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. You are you are a forfatter. I am. So I'm gradually picking up bits of Norwegian. So I know now that that means an author. But how many books have you written? About a dozen now. It's. it's a little different if you count ones I've done my, myself. There are some that I've co-authored or books that I've kind of contributed some chapters to, yeah. but about 11 or nearly 12 that I've done just on my own, yeah. Very good. And this arrangement on Facebook, so I wrote uh, Apologet, Philosoph, the Fofata, and he wrote, what is Fofata? He learned a Norwegian word. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't ask, you don't learn. Jeg tar det på norsk, jeg skal ikke bare over det, tror jeg. Altså, dette med teori er på en måte at det funker bra for folk som tror at man får bedre argumenter for det man tror på. Men hvis du da møder og skal på måde måske overbevise andre, som ikke tror, altså hvilken erfaring har han på måde med med det? Er det lige enkelt? Hello. So the question is about uh, apologetics mm. and um, uh, the experience that uh, apologetics often. Uh, strengthens the faith of Christians, but mm. what is your experience of actually using it to convince non-Christians? Yeah, good question. And I think, um, well, first of all, to say that I think apologetics is important and useful for Christians, and that is a a, a good function, proper function of apologetics. Um, asking people to not just change their mind about reality, but to change their way of life, is a tough thing to do. And people who do that tend to report that it takes them a number of years to do it. Um, And I certainly know of people for whom um, apologetic arguments have played an important role in that change. Uh, It's probably not the only thing that is involved, but it is an important part of some people's journey, at least. Uh, And, I mean, we have an example sitting next to me uh, that when you uh, met um, the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, I'm guessing particularly as... um, So it was was actually not an argument formulated at all. It was just the sense that the universe has a beginning. Mm. 
uh, that seems to imply something and we discussed this mm. uh, back and forth for a long time and we kind of made an argument uh, created it yeah. uh, and um, uh, when I had uh, when we were very clear on what we meant here which was basically uh, something must have been the first thing that there was uh, the first first thing is either nothing something physical or something non-physical uh, and then we just had to weigh up yeah. the alternatives against each other mm. um, so when, when I when we were clear that this is the argument I would say it, it's probably something physical that was the first mm. and then I uh, started reading up on the science I uh, had available uh, and um, I came to the, to the conclusion that there seem it seems oh, the physical doesn't seem to have the resources to actually uh, explain how the universe began mm. uh, nothing does not have the resources to explain how yeah. the universe began. Doesn't have anything. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the point of nothing. <laughs> um, so to have an uh, so it, it probably is mm. something non-physical because that could have uh, the resources and if it had, mm. it resembled what we usually call God. Mm. Mm. But then, as you say, it took a number of years to go from that position to Christianity, which is a very kind of specific notion mm. of God. And in that sense, I mean, your journey was like, a bit like C.S. Lewis's journey, where uh, Lewis uh, went from being an atheist to some kind of spiritual kind of something to theism, a God. And then it took a number of years to move from there to Christianity, yeah. as well, you know, step by step by step, um, and all sorts of things involved in that, including uh, rational argumentation and friendships with folks like J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, Owen Barfield, and discussions about the nature of rationality in the universe and all sorts. So, yeah, I think it, it takes people time, but it certainly can play a role. And there's plenty of testimonies from people for whom it's been an important part of their of their journey. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, sorry. So first you, and then over here. I won't forget you. I just a uh, reply to that. I, I had a good conversation with Carl again. Our annual meeting in our company, and uh, I know his his uh, upbringing was his father was a priest, mm. and he worked, uh, you know, for Campus Crusade for Christ uh -huh. many years. Uh, his parents, when he was a young kid, he, he had suffered, you know, a very poor, <coughs> no pay, you know, living mm. in faith, uh, childhood. Uh, and uh, he, he's quite clear that he doesn't, he's not a Christian. Um, and I asked him, uh, because he, he grew up in, in a Christian family, so I asked him, do you have any kind of philosophical or arguments against God? Or is it just that you don't want to? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I have to be honest, I don't want to. Mm. Yeah. So, I think, you know, 
for people growing up with the Christian worldview, you know, I think it's a totally different ball game. Mm. It's more or less, you know, confronting the will uh, or the, the the longing or the you know coming back. Mm. Uh, very often, the this very small hindrances, I guess, in the yeah. in the worldview, and you know, and mm. there might be one or two triggers that they kind of took them off. But it's in the end, it's very often, you know. Do you want to follow Jesus yeah. or not? Uh, and you're chosen to go away, not just because you know, your whole world collapsed. Yeah. But but if you come from a different background, you know that journey is, I, I think, very often is quite long. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As I say, because your your whole self, your whole way of life is included. Um, we're talking about something that more than reason impinges on. But reason does impinge on. I do think it's important that the church gives space and encouragement to, uh, particularly our young people as they're growing up in the in the church uh, when they're young, to be able to ask these kind of questions and to um, confront the kind of objections that they will meet in in culture to Christianity, and that we equip them with the tools to be able to think through those issues well. For themselves, not to be, you know, frightened of, you know, don't ask questions, just have faith. I think that attitude of of, of most is the one that is designed to end up pushing our young people away from faith. To say, oh, it's great that you've got a question. We can think about that. <laughs> we can find resources on that. Uh, we can teach you how to outthink. <laughs> The Richard Dawkinses of this world, uh, and so on, uh, is something that 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 is important to do. Um, yeah, and and you had your hand up earlier. Uh, yeah. I've had this question asked of me, and my kids have even asked me, mm. um, and I'm interested to see what you would answer. So, um, why does God? need us, if you want to say that, mm. to worship him. We get to spend eternity and worship him forever. Why? Why does yeah. why is that a good Okay. So um yeah, as you say, need needs those those uh, those air marks around it. Why would he why why does he want us to, to do that? Right? Uh and I think from a philosopher's point of view, I immediately want to ask, okay, let's analyse, what do we mean by worship? What is it to worship God? To, to ascribe to God the worth that he genuinely has. To correctly uh, judge or appraise the worth of God as the being who his, you know, his very essential nature is the, the most beautiful nature that there can be like the most valuable indeed the source of value i i don't think that the world would have objective value or worth or meaning or indeed purpose in it if there wasn't a god and so i think god wants us to worship him because he wants us to be um, correctly engaged with reality in a way that helps us to flourish, uh, to be living in the world 
um, in line with what's true and in line with what is valuable and meaningful uh, and so on because that is the life that is the most worthwhile and valuable and meaningful. Uh, so I think the real answer here is um, out of his love for us that he wants what is best for us and what is best for us is to correctly relate to value and meaning and, and so on in the world as it really is. Yeah. But I, I can see why from, from, a, from a cultural point of view kind of worship gets gets kind of reduced down to as we talk about in church sometimes in England at least we're now going to have a time of worship mm. what is worship? it's when we sing songs about God so when we say God wants us to worship him it's like oh God wants us to spend eternity singing worship songs mm. oh good grief can you imagine anything worse like um, <laughs> Uh, whereas if you think of, of worship as kind of being in this right relationship with God where um, Augustine uh, talked about um, the, the ordo amoris the, uh, or, uh, in Latin the um, appropriate love to love everything in the way that it's appropriate to love it um, and if God is kind of the most important, the most valuable, if God is love uh, and so on, then uh, putting him at the kind of the, the, the apex of what we're aiming at in life um, correctly orders our loves for everything else. Uh, and so we're functioning within the sphere of, of love in, in the right way, in, in the most good, true, beautiful, loving way. Um, and what more, you know, what more could you possibly imagine that that exhausts value and meaning and purpose? Um, yeah. So we often, we often do a disservice to the notion of worship and how we communicate what that is in church in a way that kind of reinforces why that would be a sensible question to kind of ask and a sensible worry to have because of that misunderstanding and miscommunication of w what worship is actually about. Yeah. Thank you. Ah, thank you. So one aspect to that also would be that... Uh, in many Christian circles, uh, one uh, could say something that, something like that, everyone worships something. And what they mean then is that everyone puts something highest. And that's more the notion of worship that you're talking about mm. rather than uh, the notion that, mm. that uh, just singing or mm. or not just that's amazing also yeah uh, yeah i would call that you know praise yeah we're engaging in a liturgy of praise mm. at, at that time whereas in you know in the bible paul for example talks about the, the sacrificing your self to god living your life as a living sacrifice so giving yourself to god this is your 
reasonable act of worship. This is kind of the, the, the reasonable act of worship, the rational act of worship to, to live your life as an offering to God. Uh, yeah. So. And here we have then kind of two words for uh, worship to kind of make it more specific. Mm. Like uh, we have uh, songs of praise, it's like what we uh, say when we're like singing, and then we have like, um, uh, yeah, praise. Like we have the saints. Mm. Yeah. We distinguish between them. Good. But that, uh, even so, mm. uh, we still kind of have the same problem here in Norway. Mm. Mm. Maybe another way also for, for kids to to um, to have to worship in a way it's, it's like seeing these beautiful fireworks or this beautiful sunset. And yeah. oh, do I have to say that it's beautiful? <laughs> in a way, it's like it's coming spontaneous. In a way, it's like mm. whoa. So it's not you don't have to, but it's it's like seeing a new fireworks. Uh, you understand? It's, like, it's a nice way to see say to the kids at least because mm. it's something splendid you see of God and automatically you you worship Him mm. in a way. Mm. Mm. I find it quite interesting that question. I work as a worship leader. Mm. I've been doing so in church for quite some time, and, and it's kind of interesting actually being in different conversation about worship and, mm. and stuff over the years. And um, in, in some sense, I think like we answer this kind of question too often with like, uh, like, oh no no, you, you don't need to worship. I mean, that's okay for you. You don't. Need, I mean, like, because people might like say, I worship isn't. It's not kind of my thing, you know. I, I'm into more other. Like, and, and, and for for like in churches and pastors, and they're like. Well, that's okay if you're not that, like if worship isn't your thing. That's okay, like. But and then I sometimes I just do like a rhetorical uh, thing. Yeah, and I say like reading the Bible. It, it's not my thing, you know. Like, uh, it's not. Yeah, you know. And then people were like, oh, oh, can you say that as a Christian? No, you know, I don't like reading. I, I praise the Lord. I like doing, I'm taking some walks in the nature, and that's that's kind of my thing, you know. And some people will be like, I pray, it's not my kind of, you know, yeah, uh, liberty, you know. I, I maybe you guys, you like to stand up when you're, when you're reading the creed. I'm more kind of like, I want to lay down doing that. And it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting, I think, because sometimes I think also it's, it's about what Runa just said. Uh, uh, I, 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 I think sometimes we need uh, we, we need the experience of God, or uh, like we need the veil lifted mm. from our eyes to actually see His beauty, and 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 then worship is, is kind of the natural response to that. It's, it's mm. uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think too often we, in my opinion, that in, in churches and like the pastors and people, they are like. Oh, no, 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 you don't need to work. Instead of kind of like, maybe there's another issue here. Um, yeah, yeah. It would, it would be, kind it's, of. it's not, it's not easy to say because it's kind of, yeah, uh, sometimes that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. But in a way, you also told about the beauty. Uh, yeah. Maybe mm, that's mm, part, mm. can you, how can we expand that in our churches to, to, to see the beauty, not only talk about sin, mm, you mm. see, what is, 
how can we see more of this? Yeah, yeah, expand on that, and and and, uh, and, and, and what kind of and, and what kind of persuasive yeah. ways can we mm. use the beauty of God in in convicting? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can do more uh, Bible teaching on the beauty of God to to, to begin with. <laughs> we don't get preaching on, on those verses in the Bible that, that, that talk about that. Um, but I think um, you, can, you can see the, the beauty in the, the narrative of Scripture, um, particularly when you're looking at the person of, of Christ, I think. You know, God didn't primarily choose to communicate to us through a theology textbook, <laughs> dropped from on high. He communicated to us through a life that was a, you know, a story, the story of Israel and the story of the life of Christ and so on. Uh, and that is, um, I think particularly if you think about the life of Christ, um, there's something attractive about his life that can be described as, as beautiful. Um, and we often describe um, morals of people in terms, in aesthetic terms, of did they live a beautiful life? Were, were their actions beautiful? We can kind of use that language as well as the, the language of morality. They're, they're very close. Um, and I think, you know, philosophically, I think that just as, you know, there's the moral argument uh, about moral values and the existence of God, there's a parallel argument from beauty if you have an objective account of beauty and I would do that basically by building my account, my understanding of beauty on my account of, of morality and truth and say that things are beautiful, at least overall, when their qualities are such that you are within your moral rights objectively speaking, within your moral rights, to appreciate it, to, to value its qualities, and you can start dividing up all sorts of qualities and so on. But uh, if you are, if it is good to appreciate, if it is, uh, this is a biblical way of putting it, if it is praiseworthy, and Paul talks about, you know, if there's anything is praiseworthy, think about these things. You know, he's not some postmodernist saying, you know, like whatever you like, whatever floats your boat, man, you know. Um, it's like, if anything is praiseworthy, um, it is good to praise it for the qualities that it actually has, um, then I would say that's kind of what we mean by beautiful here. And God is praiseworthy right for for who he is and what he's done uh, and so on and that is um, a, a connection with an expression of the beauty of God mm. uh, the praiseworthiness of God for his qualities of goodness and truth and love and dying for us on the cross uh, and so on um, that is beautiful now that raises a, a, an interesting issue because you think of someone dying on a cross, that is horrific mm. and beautiful. 
Uh, and this is because things can be beautiful overall. doesn't mean every aspect of it has to be beautiful for it to be beautiful overall, right? But what's, what's going on and what's being, you know, what's being I would put it this way, what's being expressed by Jesus through the cross of God's love and forgiveness available to us uh, makes that uh, something that is beautiful overall. Um, hmm. But from evolutionary perspective, what hmm. is beauty done? Because you don't need beauty to survive in alternative. Yeah, it's some kind of spin-off from environments that were useful to our survival. Maybe you might kind of argue that you know, a fruitful landscape with fresh water and fruit growing on trees in it and things is we would evolve to consider beautiful because that would be useful to our survival and so on. But, you know, issues like looking at the snowy mountain peaks in the distance that, you know, ancient man is never, never, never going to kind of look, yeah, it's like, so I don't know, but all all kind of evolutionary explanations of this kind of thing, just as in the, the moral realm, people argue about this in the moral realm as well, that the, the problem is is putting that explanation within a naturalistic worldview that puts a full stop on it and says, and that's all there is going on, that's all there is to it. So long as you could say, that mechanism is how God arranged for us to have these feelings, which he knew would accurately represent the facts of the matter, that torturing small children for fun is objectively wrong, not just something that I feel icky uh, about because of my evolutionary history. Now, maybe God gave me these feelings through my evolutionary history. You know, you could, you could, you could say that. Um, but as long as you don't put a full stop and say, and that evolutionary history, naturalistically speaking, is all that was going on, and you kind of cut God out of the picture, uh, then that is at least compatible with actually saying, uh, as it seems to be to us, that these feelings are giving us a kind of an insight into something that's real, that morality is something we discover in reality. And I think this is the same with, with beauty. And it, Indeed, in my thesis, I, I gave this argument. There's a famous Oxford atheist philosopher called J.L. Mackey. Uh, and he, uh, he famously avoided the moral argument for God by embracing moral subjectivism and saying, there isn't anything objectively right or wrong. But he said this, he, he, he said um, that uh, the notion of beauty was kind of on a footing, on a par with the notion of morality. And if you thought that morality was objective, you basically ought to think that beauty was as well. Because any reason, any argument against the objectivity of beauty that you could give, you could equally give against the objectivity of morality and vice versa. So I used the atheist Mackey to argue that well, since I do think that morality is objective, if you think that and you take what Mackie said, then that gives us a good reason for thinking that beauty is objective as well. Yeah. So does that mean that you, you don't embrace 
Peter Kreft's formulation of the argument from beauty, either you understand it or you don't. <laughs> well, see, that's, yeah, formally speaking, that's not an argument, is it? He just says, uh, there is the music of J.S. Bach, therefore God exists. You either get this or you don't. But it's interesting, he, he communicates, uh, Kreft says he knows uh, at least three people who are all like uh, either monks or academic professors of philosophy or things now, who say the reason they're not atheists today is listening to the St. Matthew Passion by J.S. Bach. Um, yeah, uh, there's, uh, I was reading recently about uh, a, a guy in Japan who's, who's again now like a, a, I think a Jesuit priest or something in a university there, who first got interested in the spirituality behind the music of Bach's Goldenberg Variations. Uh, um, the, the, um, the, 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 on the piano, you know, um, and that there was something about that music that that pushed him to investigate what was the spirituality, what was the worldview behind this music, and that led him into an exploration uh, of of Christianity, and he's you know, now a Christian. So it's it's not like you know listening to Bach converted him, but it was part again, just like arguments can be, it was part of the story, that music expressed something of the artist's worldview that captured his attention. Uh, I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, Christopher Hitchens, uh, famous uh, atheist writer, um, died a few years ago now, but his brother Peter Hitchens is still alive. and He wrote a book uh, and he expresses how he grew up in the sort of 1950s, 60s, culture of secularism and science explains everything and we don't need God and God is an old-fashioned idea and then he was on holiday and he went into a church in France I think and he saw this this altar painting and he says I scoffed at the mention of it in the guidebook but now I stood before it and my mouth was literally hanging open and in this painting, there was a, it was a painting of the Last Judgment at the altar, and it says that the figures, the naked figures of the people running into hell on one side of this altar piece, the fact that they were naked meant that they weren't obscured behind uh, the, uh, the clothing kind of of their historical period. They weren't people of the ancient past. They were suddenly... They were me and my friends, he said, and I had no doubt that I was amongst the damned, if there were any damned. <laughs> he said, the, this, this kind of, it cracked through his, his dismissal of religion as, that's something old-fashioned that's not relevant to now. And seeing a 15th century altar painting in a church shattered that preconceived notion for him and made him for the first time think maybe religious ideas are things that can actually be relevant now could possibly be true now and again that you know didn't convert him but it was the first kind of crack in the way that he looked at the world of he would just dismiss religion as an old-fashioned thing and here was this really old-fashioned 15th century painting which was the thing that started him thinking seriously about religion. And he's a Christian. And he's a Christian today, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter, uh, Peter Hitchens. Peter yeah. uh, if you want to read his book, uh, um, in which he discusses about his relationship with his, his brother and his journey to faith and, and so on, and a lot about the kind of cultural um, pressures that shaped people's beliefs uh, when, whilst he was growing up, uh, it's, his, it's Peter Hitchens and his book, uh, The Rage Against God. Following on to uh, the question about the kids asking questions, uh, mm. research from Barna Institute also believes that kids take their decision for Christ at a very, at very early age, more and more. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the philosophical arguments and, and apologetics we face is typically, you know, a little bit advanced and, and mm. uh, you know. 18 plus typically, um, but how can we help or what is the key, what, what are the kind of uh, low hanging fruits that mm. can help like a 13, 14, 15 year old yeah. um, discussing with their peers uh, and also help themselves you know, in kind of resting in their upbringing and their faith. If you scale it all down to mm. a 15 year old. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's kind of on your list, top five? <laughs> uh, kind of resource wise. Or, or argumentative oh, wise. Or, 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 yeah, I think yeah. Really, you know, was beautiful mm. to hear. About. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, at sort of that age, was beginning to read some of the kind of apologetic work of C.S. Lewis. By the time I was like in A level, around sort of 16, 17 year old, I was reading uh, American Christian philosophers and apologists like J.P. Morland and Norman L. Geisler. And I, I think we may underestimate, you know, not every 16 year old is going to be of that mind, but don't dismiss the fact that some might be up, actually up for that. But I think we, we can do a lot to kind of explain in, in simple ways some of these basic arguments and some of the historical evidence about Jesus, some of the basic arguments about the resurrection, about the kind of lunatic liar lord kind of argument and so on. Um, there, we do live in an age where there's an increasing number of resources aimed at uh, helping in this area, um, one that was just published in Norwegian. Uh, okay, you're gonna. <laughs> so um, Natasha Crane has uh, lots of resources here, and uh, we just translated a book. Vårdan snakker med barna om Gud. Tretti samtaler en bør ha med sine barn. It's also in English, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that that's uh, from six, seven, eight, and up. Yeah. She was a speaker and Deltas uh, also. Yeah. Teacher too. Uh, Crane. Yeah. yeah, Natasha Crane. Crane. Craig so and Crane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and um, you may have heard of the name Lee Strobel, who's. Uh, He's an American journalist who um, went from atheist to Christian after doing his own research and has written a series of books where basically he interviews Christian scholars on different aspects of apologetics uh, in a series of books. But he has then written uh, books 
that take that material and then aim it down to kind of teenagers and to children uh, as well. So you can get like his, I guess his most famous book would be The Case for Christ, but you can get like The Case for Christ for Kids. Uh, 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 and so on, the case for uh, God, the faith, and so on. I think he's, those kind of same can be said for J. Warner Wallace, who's also uh, yeah. uh, a crime scene investigator who has uh, gone from atheist to Christian. Uh, writes books that are very uh, easily understandable in uh, to adults with pictures and drawings and everything so it, it's really understandable yeah. and uh, he has also books specifically for kids and yeah. youth and yeah. students yeah there's even a whole kind of online kids course yeah. that you you can do to kind of uh read the books and do some sort of homework stuff and send it off and get a certificate from the sort of you know uh, God's Detective Agency or something. I, yeah. I don't quite remember the details, but he's got a whole sort of uh, course of resources. So if you look up online, J. Warner Wallace, mm. uh, that's a, a useful thing. Particularly, he's he's kind of tends to engage particularly on the historical yeah. uh, evidence. I think he's really uh, um, good yeah. communicating. Uh, uh, yeah, and, um, uh, he's yeah. Uh, I actually used some because he's he's uh, doing uh, apologetics for like small kids, <coughs> or parents who listen to the series and stuff. And yeah. He explains kind of complex things and uh, like because I've, I've used some of his ideas to explain actually some of the, some of the more hard mm. things to explain yeah. uh, for younger people. For example, uh, <coughs> uh, talking about subjective and objective morals, uh, I use a dice. You know, uh, I've been, uh, um, with, with the kids and I throw the dice and I'm like, how cool are you? Like, uh, and then they get get like a six and they're like, oh, they're really happy. And, and then I say to this other guy, how cool are you? And then he gets a one, he's like so sad and I'm laughing. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and then I, afterwards I explain kind of like, okay, you can experience this, but still, still just the die. It's just random. And, and, and you know he has kind of brilliant ideas of how explaining more kind of complex ideas uh, to uh, to children. Uh, yeah. And they also uh, brought more content this year on the Veritas forum. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And also Annette Lökenjar. Yep. She's coming to Fellesmötena in uh, for for kids and families, and she is also explaining through. Uh, to science and science experiments <coughs> and, and so on. So she's very good in that. So also Veritas is, is uh, improving yeah. in, in that area. So that's that was m one of the main focuses for this year. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Are there any good YouTube channels with short videos for kids who don't have a long attention span? <laughs> hmm. Testify? Um, how, how young are they? Especially the 15, maybe even the 12 year old testify would be brilliant. Um, I'm not used to watching stuff for 
eight-year-olds, <laughs> so I, I don't have that much. But for 15-year-olds, I, I work with 15-year-olds and 13-year-olds. So uh, testify, I would really highly recommend. Uh, if they're following along with good arguments, inspiring philosophy. Uh, inspiring philosophy is... Um, That's the YouTube channel? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but but it, that is high, it's high level, but uh, approachable. Um, Would you say the little... Um, YouTube videos of the arguments for God that Bill Craig's website has the little illustrated Probably. ones. And they they are age. translated into Norwegian. Yeah. So uh, Craig. Uh, no, no, that's uh, William Lane Craig. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, you can find them in Norwegian in Snakom um, mm. mm. Dr. Craig videos kind of in the yeah. mm. But uh, also, uh, it's interesting in when, uh, when when being half American in a way, you're thinking. I like this uh, this uh, homeschool thinking that you have in the states in a way because you know we just we're not uh, we're not there, mm. and we need to to prepare the kids. And and uh, I like that uh, attitude for. How can we, we school them and how can we prepare them for, for, for meeting people? So, so we need to have more of that, that into Norway, I think, because also listen to Mama Bear Apologetics. Yes. Have you heard of that? Uh, mm. it's a, but is it a podcast? Or? Uh, it's an e-book. Uh, I, I heard it on, on a spot, uh, Storytelling. <laughs> Storytelling. Uh, Mama Bear Apologetics. And it's the same, like the Mama Bear taking care of the kids and and she needs to be prepared for the kids because mm. they will meet challenges. Mm. So I think that's good mm. for, for a mom and, and they give examples for, also possibly for our dad. <laughs> but uh, I like that American way of thinking that we need to school them, homeschooling. Mama Bear Apologetics also has a website and everything. So, so yeah. it's a big okay. familiar. Yeah. Very good. Mm. Yeah. Question about the a couple of recent uh, events. Whether you can make any comments on the Queen's death mm. and the there's been a discourse both in Norway and yes, in the UK also about you know um, the Queen's faith and you know the fact that it was a Christian funeral. Yeah. Is the weekend, you know commentators say well you know there was a ceremony with a lot of with some some religious elements and they had no clue about what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I watched the whole thing and you know it was beautiful. Uh, so mm. speaking volumes I guess into mm. so a little bit about that discourse in the UK or around you. Yeah. And uh, secondly, you know, this situation where things are more, you know, uneasy with war looming, you know, what how how will this happen? Mm. Uh, climate and those, those big things, you know, threats around us. How, how does it affect, you know, the what comes to top of mind in discussion and the discussion? Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. Very interesting. So yes, the, I mean, the, the Queen Elizabeth II's, uh, she was the queen for all of my lifetime mm. and more, like 70 years jubilee. She just uh, celebrated this year uh, and then died this year um, in September. And we were there with yeah, the with the Communication and Worldview course and uh, the queues of people lining up to see her lying in state in, in London. Uh, and f lots of people kind of expressed how she had been a, a constant presence in their life and a, a sense of kind of uh, nothing is stable. Mm. Because for a lot of people, they didn't have anything beyond the world that is stable and she's going to be the most stable thing in the socio-political life of our of our country and so i think a lot of people were deeply affected by that whether they themselves were believers or not um, and certainly the queen was very upfront and clear about her own christian faith her um, christmas day message sort of a short uh, speech to the nation every Christmas day afternoon um, was a, was a long-standing tradition, and she would be she would always talk about Jesus uh, and Christianity, and that she was you know I inspired by Christ and a follower of Christ and so on. She didn't kind of you know she's the head of the church and she's the head of the state of a multicultural state. Um, so she didn't exactly kind of evangelize from her position, but she was just very clear about, I do what I do because I'm inspired by the life of Christ who acted like this, and he's my Lord, kind of thing. Mm. But it was often one of the most Christian things on television each year, uh, apart from like uh, the BBC Songs of Praise programme where they film people singing hymns in a church, or... Um, carols from King's College every Christmas and so on. Uh, so there, there, there was that. She genuinely seemed to, to have a, a genuine faith and I think the Archbishop uh, Welby at her funeral service really took with both hands the opportunity he had to be broadcasting to millions of people and to give uh, the message and to, he drew this parallel between uh, on her 21st birthday um, the then uh, princess uh, had uh, given a, a radio speech in which she'd promised that her life would be dedicated to the service of England and the Commonwealth and, and so on. And he said, you know, rarely has a promise been kept so well. And so many people talked about that, yes, she was born into a life of privilege, but it was also a life of, of service uh, that she very kind of deliberately uh, promise this is what my life is going to be about serving um, and right up until sort of the week of her death she was receiving you know Liz Truss as the new Prime Minister of England who isn't Prime Minister anymore but that's a whole other story <laughs> uh, and you know doing her official duties and so on although clearly she was not well by that by that stage um, and then he just moved from the life of the Queen to the life of Christ, whom she was following, who inspired who, of the, you know, the servant king, servant leader, uh, and then moved on to talk about the Queen's hope uh, 
uh, for uh, you know a life, a uh, reality after death that was also founded in Christ. So her life was lived in, in service, inspired by Christ, and she also lived in hope in the face of death because of Christ, and we too can do the same thing. That was basically the message. Um, so I think very carefully crafted, very carefully explained, very tied into the occasion, but also very clearly gospel-focused. It's only a page long, but if you Google Justin Welby, Queen's funeral speech, read it uh, for yourself. It's just a page, but a really uh, good page of Christian communication on an occasion where the, you know, the Archbishop knows there are going to be millions of people watching this. <laughs> that's that's billion. Yeah, let's let's uh, grab this opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, and you were also asking about, you know, we live in turbulent times. When do we not? But we always kind of feel that our age is perhaps, you know, the most urgently turbulent uh, and so on. Um, life was ever thus. There will be wars and rumours of wars, but this does not mean that the end has come. Um, but if the end is coming... What can we do about it except live in faithfulness to Christ? I remember when I was a student worker back in Leicester, the 9-11 attacks happened in America. Um, I was helping someone do some house moving and gardening and stuff at the time and someone came out for a house down the street and kind of shouted up the street at me. And they said, Palestine has de declared war on America. <laughs> and I kind of laughed at them. And they said, no, no, it's really serious. And they went off back indoors. Now, they had got the wrong end of the stick <laughs> about who was attacking America. Um, but, you know, it's one of those, you remember where you were when you first heard about kind of events. And that Sunday uh, was a communion service at the church I was working for. And there was this sense of what on earth is going to happen now? Like, what is America particularly going to do in response to this? If terrorists are prepared to do this, uh, you know, all sorts of questions were being asked about, you know, the Muslims and the Jews and Israel and America and the kind of the, th the threat of nuclear war was in the air, actually. And I remember our minister at the communion service kind of saying, you know, I don't know if the bomb is going to drop this afternoon, but if it is, let's praise the Lord and come and worship him at the communion table now. That's all we can do. <laughs> uh, be faithful servants in the situation you're in. Um, you know, that's... The, the response, we, we just live in faithfulness to Christ and give him the things that we know we have no power to control. <laughs> uh, we often forget that we have no power to control so much uh, of our lives, um, but we have a context in which we can live uh, with hope um, and a reason to, uh, to live in faithful hope with meaning and purpose, even in the face of the threat of nuclear war and so on. And yeah, you know, with Putin making those kind of threats in the air today, um, that can be a very scary place. And I'm sure, you know, 
we ourselves have worries and our, our kids will be asking questions if they hear like, is Putin going to nuke us all? Uh, what's what's going to happen? And, you know, honestly, we don't know. But, but we have a Lord. We have a hope. Uh, we don't live a this world focused life. We live as we do in this world because, as we were learning at the Veritas Conference, not because we're going to escape it to go to heaven, but because ultimately Christ is going to bring heaven to earth and renew it and there'll be the new heavens and the new earth where Christ is all in all and goodness and justice and peace and love reign for eternity. Amen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we need to go to, uh, to, uh, to land, but um, if, if there was anyone who wants to have a last question, but... <laughs> Magnus? Yeah. Uh, what made you aspire to become a philosopher? What made me aspire to become a philosopher? I don't think I did. I kind of fell into it. This is the thing. I was so annoyed by the postmodernism of the English literature department. And I just discovered a kind of uh, a love for the subject of philosophy. The fact that here was a subject at university where I was not merely allowed, but nay, encouraged to talk about God. And that didn't seem to be a thing that was kind of allowed elsewhere in the university. Um, so that kind of enthused me. And, you know, discovering that you're quite good at something always helps, you know, to in, 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 if you enjoy it. And being good at it helps. And uh, my tutors were encouraging. They kind of said, you could, you know, you could actually do this. And because I couldn't continue with the music and the music had been the thing that I know I want to become a Christian musician and use music for the glory of God and then I kind of hit this wall with it unexpectedly like no I cannot do that and I had been someone who would, was into like writing fiction and writing poetry and creative writing and then the English literature department were like if you want to just enjoy English literature you don't need to study literature just go and read it and I was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'll just do that. <laughs> because your whole texts don't actually mean anything, which you communicate to me in the textbooks that you've written to tell me that. And you would be annoyed with me if I misinterpreted what you were telling me through the words that you tell me don't have any meaning. Ugh. Like, I'm jumping ship. I'm going with the philosophers, because at least there, <laughs> even my atheist or agnostic philosophy professors are like, this is an important subject that has a place in the conversation at the highest levels of academia and you're welcome to come and participate in the conversation and we'll give you the tools to do that. I was like, oh, yeah, thank you. This is now the thing that I'm going to take as far as I can for the glory of God. Because the one thing I knew is whatever it was that I was going to do, I was going to do that for the glory of God. Um, it's just that it turned out to be philosophy rather than, you know, writing poetry or composing or whatever. I still do a bit of amateur composing on the side as a hobby and so on, but that's, it's clearly not going to be the thing for me, you know. Yeah, yeah.
vorbei. What is my favorite argument for God? Well, A, I can do the, the, the get out clause here by saying, really, it is the sum of all the arguments, right? I, arguments give you different bits of the picture. Different, often arguments give you different connections between God and the creation. Um, but I, I, I have a particular interest, I think, in the uh, uh, cosmological argument, contingency dependency form of the cosmological argument. The moral argument has meant a lot to me, particularly because of its connection with kind of saying if there isn't a God, actually the choice we're faced with is a godless world where nihilism is true. I think those atheists like Nietzsche and the French existentialists had it right, um, that there are serious consequences of thinking that this is a godless world, that that's, that's not an, an easy thing to reconcile yourself to. And, and so the question of God is a really significant question. Um, and I think that's mainly you know, tied up with, with this value issue about morality and that then impinges on the beauty thing. So cosmological, uh, the morality, and um, since I also studied the philosophy of science, I kind of got interested in the conversation about science and design and intelligent design theory and so on. And, and This year, I'm publishing a book on natural theology, Arguments for God, collection of papers and so on. Next year, I'm publishing a book on intelligent design theory. So um, that tells you something about where I am and, and where I situate those. Yeah. But if you ask the atheists, many of them will, will go to the fine-tuning and say that that is a good oh, argument. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very often, they yeah. say. In, in 2017, I was doing a, doing a Skeptics Week up at Trondheim University. I did a debate on the existence of God with a quite famous uh, agnostic Norwegian philosopher called Einar Byrne. Okay. Einar Byrne. Uh, and, you know, I was defending the existence of God. He was an agnostic, so defending, well, I don't know. <laughs> and then there was an atheist student in the audience in the Q&A period got up clearly quite annoyed that no one had, you know, properly defended atheism in, in this debate and started criticizing the fine-tuning design argument that I had given from cosmology. Before I could defend and reply to this student, Ina stands up and starts engaging with the student and saying, no, 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 you're, misunder you know, you're underestimating the argument. This is a really serious argument for yeah. God. And he strides over to the, to the whiteboard and starts <laughs> drawing in pictures on the whiteboard and kind of illustrating the argument, why it's a really good argument that you should take really seriously. And then he turns around to me and says, Pete, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, you're doing a good job, carry on. You know, kind of like... Uh, But it was interesting to see Ina uh, saying, you know, this is a really serious yeah. argument that you've got to take seriously. You can't just easily dismiss it at the very least. You know, of course, it doesn't convince him, but he, as an agnostic professional philosopher, thinks that, yeah, it's a really serious argument you've got to take seriously at the very least. So, and a lot of the new atheists have kind of said, if there was one argument yeah. that was kind of the one that gave the most pause for thought, it was the fine-tuning mm -hmm. argument. I think that's interesting. Uh, uh, Aina has also in, in another debate mm. uh, in Norwegian uh, where the 
Atlasovic. Uh, he has uh, so they debated, and uh, Atle went first, and uh, he presented the fine-tuning argument. And when Einlas uh, stood up, he said, "Well, you should just have let me go first because I can make that argument." Much better. Here it is. He <laughs> <laughs> did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was. I, I found him to be someone who, who was really seriously engaged yes. with the issue. You know, a pleasure to dialogue with. Um, some people that I've I've done a number of debates over the years, by no means as many as someone like William Lane Craig, but I've done a handful, and uh, sometimes you find people who just they don't really engage with the issue just talk past you talk off the topic mm. uh, and that's really frustrating but but Ina was someone who really point by point mm. we went we went through um, the the discussion at least engaging seriously uh, with it yeah and he's reading the bible for the moment yes together with you had to explain yeah. well, uh, mm. so I actually did a talk on this yesterday uh, <laughs> so um, he and uh, an athe another atheistic professor in philosophy, uh, Ole Martin Mohn, uh, reads through uh, the Bible from end to end. Uh, and so far they've come through Matthew, so they've come quite far. Um, and they take up all different matters, going off on tangents. And having a nice time uh, reading the Bible and really showing very often the relevance of the Bible. Yeah. I just heard in the, uh, the first episode yeah. and I for a philosopher starting with in the beginning yeah. I, there are so many pauses because they had to so it was really nice to see how they engaged in, in the Bible text but uh, yeah. it's a podcast and it's possible to, to listen to but but, uh, so you had a talk, so I just wanted to mention yeah. it. Yeah. And the most frustrating thing is when they um, read about um, Moses and the burning bush, mm. and they uh, read the uh, "Who should I say uh, is coming?" Um, and they went on for almost an hour, like this is a very good answer. This this could be. Um, saying monotheism, it could be uh, constancy and everything, so much about how, who God is. And they ended up this with, well, we're just philosophers, uh, there's probably nothing to this. <laughs> and then they started complaining that uh, this was the perfect place for, uh, for God to actually tell his name. But he didn't. So they didn't know <laughs> behind Lord with big capital letters mm. the name is actually there. Oh, so yeah, they should have had a theologian. Yes, <laughs> so many times I would like to have <laughs> just a philosophically minded theologian mm. sitting mm. in the back, and yeah, curiously asking, "What do you think about that?" Then, <laughs> or have you heard this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> But it's interesting to, to listen to different, uh, mm. also the opposites. And I yeah, think that yeah. is really brilliant with you, Pete, because mm. you you go to the best uh, selling books mm. and you and you you engage with them and and you you uh, 
you uh, argue against it, and mm. you write almost the same title <laughs> with, books, <laughs> with a question mark, yeah. or the opposite in a way. Mm. But how do, does the the authors respond to your books? Do they take the time to respond? <laughs> they never have. No. no. But I would say <laughs> that uh, what really stands out in Pete's work is that he uh, almost consistently uh, quotes atheists to make his case. Mm. Mm. Uh, and and that, that is really a good idea. <laughs> of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Would you agree? That? Well, for, to give you an example, yeah. so in the, in the moral argument, you have the claim that there are objective moral values, uh, the claim that the, the only or the best explanation of the existence of objective moral values would be some kind of a god, a good, transcendent personal being. If those two are true, then it follows that there is such a being. Now, there are plenty of atheists who I think do a really good job of defending the premise that there are objective moral values. So quote them in defense of objective moral values, right? And that avoids people saying, oh, well, you know, those people you're quoting, they would say that, wouldn't they, because they're on your side. Right? Saying, no, no, these are people who fundamentally disagree with me, but they do agree with this premise. And th here are their arguments. You know, you can't... But, of course, those atheists will then tend to not agree with the second premise, if they've thought it through carefully enough. But there are other atheists <laughs> who agree with the second premise and argue for it, right? Like J.L. Mackey, who will say, yeah, if there are objective moral values, that would be a really good reason for believing in God. So the way to avoid this difficulty is not to believe in objective moral values. Moral values must be subjective. And he wrote a famous book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. That was, that was on my course back in the day at Cardiff. Um, but actually, if, if Mackey is right when he says there is this connection between objective values and God, and someone like Russ Schaefer-Landau, for example, atheist philosopher who's a moral objectivist, is right that there are objective moral values, then both of those atheists are wrong about their atheism. <laughs> Uh, so I can defend the moral argument for God only by quoting atheists in that way. In terms of respectful conversation, I listen yeah. quite regularly to the Unbelievable podcast mm -hmm. Kristen Fantastic, he yeah. He's very good at posing you know, atheists and Christians together mm. in a respectful dialogue. I highly recommend that book. Yeah, yeah. Just, Justin Briley works for Premier Christian Radio in the UK and his radio show and podcast called Unbelievable, uh, just for the folks on the recording here. Yeah. Uh, I found a quote from um, an atheist mm -hmm. called uh, Alex Rosenberg. Oh, yeah. That I, <laughs> when I read his book, uh, The Atheist Guide to Reality, uh, I... Uh, and the rest of it, it's, it's an illusion. Is there an illusion? Yeah, living life without illusion. Yeah. 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 So, so um, I, I heard the book on an audiobook, and uh, I need to stop the car to actually uh, write down this quote. Um, and it's right in the middle of the book, so 
He has made a lot of claims already, and he's kind of summarizing the, these claims, saying, first, think back to the arguments of the first six chapters of this book. Everything in the last four chapters was already ordained by the fact that physics fixes all the facts. And that excludes purpose and design from our world. If you're going to allow that real purposes and designs somehow pop up out of nowhere in a world that had hitherto fixed all the facts, you might as well have put God into the universe at the outset. So if you uh, claim that there's any sort of purpose or design in any way, he, he would include that this is a table. This is a designed table. If you, you would say that is the reality, you could as well just have put God to the in the beginning of the universe. Hmm. <laughs> so he is a real nihilistic yes. going to that there is no purpose. No so he would say all that is is physics. Hmm. Atoms being atoms and we're just a consequence of atoms and that's it. And he also thinks that about his own book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he even comments it in the book. <laughs> uh, consistently, there would be no point in doing this book, but there's no point in doing anything, so why not do this? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, it, interestingly, the new government in Sweden now, and one of the ministers actually had said some way in the past, in just a small, you know, in a bigger context, that he, he was open to or positive to a six-day uh, creation, and he was like mocked out in, mm. the, in public for a week almost. You know, how can how can it be that we in 2022 have a minister? You know, who have any kind of that kind of philosophy? Mm. Like she was totally discredited in media. Uh, how do you deal with, um, you know, I listen to your, you know, uh, tonight you mentioned you know, evolutionary arguments and creation arguments, you know, what's your point on, on you know, we, we seldom hear, you know, like word by word, day by day, six days, six, six thousand years, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But you know there are uh, arguments for that too. Uh, I mean, people around. Yeah, there are certainly uh, intelligent, well-educated people who hold to a so-called literalistic, six-day creationist, young Earth creationist position. I don't hold that position myself, and uh, I don't think that it's appropriate to ridicule people just because you differ in an opinion with them on such a matter, um, what we should do is engage in respectful argument with each other. And that applies to uh, disagreements that Christians have with non-Christians, but it also applies to disagreements that Christians have with other Christians, mm. right? Um, and so I think there should be space for people defending different views and arguing about them and trying to if we see that as trying to help each other to arrive at the truth as best we can, as 
the fallible thinking beings that we are, you know, um, to kind of hold the truth humbly enough to, to say, well, this overall, having listened to everything that I understood thus far is how I see it, but I'm open to having my mind changed if you can give me a good enough reason to do it. And, you know, um, we have to be systematic about that and start from points of agreement. And often it's, it's very difficult to get to uh, knowing uh, that we're starting from the same kind of starting principles and so on in, in the discussion. Uh, but I think it, it, it can be done and we can work out, you know, at least where our points of disagreement are, what the, what the key issues are, what the more important issues are from the less important uh, and so on. Um, you know, where all, you know, Christians can have in common a doctrine of creation, but we can have different pictures or models of creation. So we all agree, you know, you can all agree that uh, God exists in and of himself. He created a universe that depends upon him, that wouldn't exist if it weren't for his intention, that it does, that he has a purpose for it, um, uh, that you know humans are in his image, there's something about uh, representing God, uh, there's all sorts of stuff in the Genesis account and the other creation accounts in the Bible that uh, Christians could agree on um, about the kind of uh, temple picture uh, about uh, all sorts of theological claims that are being made there. But there are clearly differences of interpretation that, that Christians have. And those differences have lasted for a long time. <laughs> uh, and new interpretations are being proposed even to this day. So we haven't perhaps thought of all the ways of reading the text yet, even to ask uh, necessarily which the best way of reading it is. Um, and so I think starting from, you know, as much commonality as possible with respectful dialogue and argument, we try and make as much headway as we can without getting too caught up on non-essential kind of issues, uh, as it were. Um, so, yeah, to be, to be clear, I embrace intelligent design theory, but within a context of an old universe and an old earth and so on. And... Um, I think you that think, is. You think it's unhelpful uh, in a, maybe not in, in a persuading people to change their mind. Yeah, I think particularly when you start talking about biological design, um, that is caught up in so many socio-political issues uh, that uh, you're on much easier territory, at least when you say talk about the fine-tuning design argument with people outside of the faith um, and you know there are there are even forms of that argument that you could mount consistent with a young earth position right uh, but that does a, an end round around all the biological discussions that you know I'm very happy to have about the the information processing systems in cells and the irreducibly complexible complexity of little machines made out of molecules in the cells and so on and so forth. But as I was teaching uh, earlier today, 
evolution means a whole range of different claims actually and you can you can accept some of the claims and reject some of them it's not necessarily kind of a package deal that you have to take all together or reject the whole thing uh, so once you carefully distinguish different aspects of what our culture kind of views as kind of the grand evolutionary kind of myth as you might call it uh, you can say actually no this part of it i agree with but this part i disagree with the question is never as simple as do you believe in evolution or not that's like too simple a question my friend let me let me tell you the at least six things that <laughs> that go into our culture's picture of origins and start telling you which bits I have issues with and which bits I don't. And by the way, we need to have a conversation about what we mean by science um, and drawing a line, if that's even possible, between science and philosophy. And notice how philosophical and even theological assumptions often are used in the secular presentation of these things to bolster particular interpretations of reality that are presented as scientific but when you dig into them actually often crucially rely upon philosophical and theological assumptions yeah I think we go to Jonan but, but uh, to me it's uh, it must be very annoying for you when for example Richard Dawkins is using like science to argue against uh, the yeah. for example uh, historicity history history historicity is historicity? the word you're going for yeah. historicalness yeah, historicity. yeah. <laughs> of, uh, for example the old testament and and, um, and uh, when we were in england uh, he, he you taught about this um, argument about the camels uh, that Richard Dawkins had, in, oh, you see, yeah. he, he used science to argue that yeah. the Old Testament yeah. is not right. And you're sitting there in information that you are the one being wrong. Yes, it. yeah. Can you t tell us a little bit about that? Because yeah. and let's, let's end on that so these folks can get home to bed. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. but at the same time, if I go into traffic, I, I uh, people you do like this and, and they, do, they think that I do the mistake but yeah. I know that they have they do the mistake you understand yes you, you want to tell them that and, or yeah. else they would think that they have yeah. right yeah yeah and, and this is in Dawkins's book kind of aimed at a sort of younger teenage-ish kind of audience outgrowing God in which he says his whole thing is kind of don't believe things on authority don't believe what your parents just brought you up to believe ask questions ask what's the evidence here's why you shouldn't trust the old testament for example the old testament talks about uh, camels uh, in the patriarchal era you know abraham had camels uh, but this is an anachronism it's uh, historically out of place putting camels in this historical period um, Camels were not domesticated until uh, in in Israel until after the time of King David. Now he doesn't give any references for that; he just asserts it, and many readers will, of course, believe it. You know, he's a famous Oxford don. Of course, what he says in this book must be must be right. Yeah. Well, actually, he's referring to a sort of I think it was 2013, 2014. There was an archaeological report 
on the uh, copper mining site at Timna in Israel, uh, where they had done an analysis of the bones on the site and argued that uh, camels, domesticated camels, were not used at this copper smelting site until around after the time of David, right? That then got reported in the New York Times as a story saying that camels were out of place in Genesis. And we've moved from a, an archaeological scientific report about the use of camels at a site <laughs> in Israel, in Israel, to Camels are out of place in Genesis, as, as kind of the, the headline. And even uh, the comedy series Big Bang Theory, in, a, in, uh, in the season around that, that, that time, 2013-2014 season of the Big Bang, had a bit of a skit where the character of Sheldon and Howard are talking, and Sheldon is saying, you know, I'm, I'm bringing a gift of knowledge to, to, to mum, rather than like Howard wanted to bring a box of chocolates or something. They said, no, I'm bringing the gift of knowledge. Although her Bible says that, you know, Abraham had camels and so on, recent scientific research has shown that they weren't, you know, used, they weren't domesticated until hundreds of years later. And so it works its way into popular culture. Now, who knows where Dawkins got his idea from, whether he was watching the Big Bang Theory or reading the New York Times or he read the original archaeological report. He doesn't tell us, he doesn't give us that information. But anyway, the mention of camels in Genesis is not about Israel, it's about Mesopotamia. And when you go and read, and I reference the uh, uh, Doyen of British Egyptologists, Kenneth Kitchen, uh, or Martin Hyde, who published an extensive review uh, of this. Uh, or uh, I also reference a recent uh, 2018 article from Biblical Archaeology Review magazine. Um, there is inscriptional and archaeological evidence for the use of domesticated camels from the third millennium BC, becoming more, uh, more common around the turn of the second millennium BC, i.e. just around the time of Abraham, right? Who I would put in about the 19th century BC, right? Uh, and in the cultures that are being talked about in the Bible. In other words, those camels are right where they should be, but lots of people are going to get the idea that the, you know, the Old Testament is historically unreliable because Richard Dawkins said so. And he's just wrong. <laughs> and yeah, that's frustrating. <laughs> Even more frustrating, like if people know about that argument that uh, we're out of place, then if the one that they are talking to don't know about that false yeah. assumption, yeah. Then, yeah. then they might believe it to be right as well. Yeah. And they can't even argue against it unless they read up on it. Right. So it's something that you have to yeah. have a stand on, yeah. like really have to yeah. know about it. And so I'm, I'm very keen in my talks and in my books and so on to also communicate to the readers, to the listeners, the tools and the references so that they can check 
what I'm saying for themselves, to teach them, here's how arguments should work and how they can go wrong. Here are the logical fallacies that Dawkins is committing. This now means you know about those fallacies and if I happen to commit them, you will spot them. So you can hold me to account just as much as you can hold other atheist writers to account. I will give you the, the footnotes and the bibliography and a page on my website with a downloadable updating PDF list of resources that's longer than your arm, you know. Uh, far too much uh, uh, resources. But to make the point, like, here is the references, here's the academic research that I'm, that I'm drawing on, and that means you can check me out, you can go and read up on this subject. Uh, I actually, you know, give you the tools that Richard Dawkins should do if he's really, you know, meaning his, you need to ask, what's the evidence? Don't just take things on authority. And then writes a whole book, which is basically take all this stuff that I say on, my, on the authority of my say-say. <laughs> it, 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 it is basically a, uh, an exercise in indoctrination. Yeah. And uh, I'm not interested in indoctrinating people. <laughs> but I am interested in, in helping them to explore for themselves uh, the big questions in a reasonable way. Yeah.